everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. As always, I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. I just want to take a very quick moment to thank everybody who has sent me emails or reached out to me over social media to talk about the book or the podcast. I have always loved talking with fellow Stephen King fans, um, especially those who love The Stand as much as I do. So please know that I am truly appreciative of everything that I get sent. And um, a very quick special shout out to the Watch If You Dare podcast. Thank you for your lovely review on Apple Podcasts. And for any horror movie fans who are listening right now, I highly recommend giving the Watch If You Dare podcast a listen. Um, Derek and Aaron uh, give some really great uh, analysis into various horror films And I listened to an episode last week and quickly downloaded uh, several back episodes that I have missed. Um, And I have found a new podcast to listen to at work as well. So that's very exciting. (laughs) So please give the Watch If You Dare podcast a follow and a listen. And I hope that you guys enjoy it as much as I have. I also want to send a quick thank you to Sean from the What Doesn't Matter podcast a while back, a new edition, a deluxe edition of the soundtrack from the 1994 miniseries of The Stand was released. And I had thought I missed out on my shot to order a copy. Um, but Sean came through and got a copy for me. And I recently received it in the mail. And it is beautiful. And I love it. And I'm so very appreciative of Sean for doing that for me. So thank you, Sean. I can't wait to listen to it. It is on CD. And I'm not going to make a joke about um, my age where it comes to CDs, (laughs) but I will be listening to it very soon. Um, The opening music of this podcast for, I think, I don't know when I changed it, but it was like the first 35, 36 episodes um, had the Project Blue theme um, as my intro and outro music to this podcast. And that is from the 1994 miniseries. And it's such a beautiful piece of music. The entire soundtrack, the entire score for that miniseries was just so fantastic. So I'm very excited to hear all the extra tracks that are included on the CD. So if you guys have a chance to get yourself a copy of this, I, and you're a fan of the 94 miniseries, then I highly recommend, uh, doing that. So yeah, thank you, Sean. Okay. So let's get back to the book. And we're going to do a quick recap of last week. In Chapter 40, Nick Andros was still in Shoyo, his leg infected by the bullet graze that he acquired when Ray Booth was trying to kill him. Nick was feverish and delirious, and it was not looking good for him. When he slept, he dreamed of a dark man, giving Nick the ability to hear and speak. Miracles he would experience if Nick got to his knees and worshipped him. Nick wanted those things, of course, but he still refused. His dreams then shifted to a cornfield where he met Mother Abigail in Polk County, Nebraska. Mother Abigail is an elderly black woman with a guitar, and she asks Nick to come see her and to bring his friends. When Nick wakes from the dream, his leg is healing, and he realizes that it is time to leave Shoyo behind. He packs up, finds a bike, and he starts out northwest towards Nebraska. Nebraska. 
This week in Chapter 41, we travel north to Bennington, Vermont on the 4th of July, where Larry Underwood has just woken up in a two-man tent that he's been sharing with Rita Blakemore. Larry is marveling at how crisp and fresh the air is. He's woken up every day since leaving New York City to sunshine and the sounds of birds singing. Every day, he feels like this is as good as it's going to get, but it just keeps getting better. It's amazing what the world feels and smells like without all of the pollution and the chemicals being pumped into the atmosphere. There's nobody hassling Larry, except for Rita, whose hassle he supposes he could put up with. And he's breathing good air and sleeping at night without tossing and turning. Larry has no problems, except to decide which way he's going to go tomorrow and how much time he could make in the day. Larry thinks that this is a pretty wonderful way to live. So, completely naked, of course, Larry climbs out of the tent while Rita sleeps. There's a motorcycle beside the tent, something that they picked up in Passaic, along with the sleeping bag and the tent. They had tried traveling in cars, but got stuck in various traffic jams, and eventually they figured out that a motorcycle was the only practical solution, as it could get around the accidents in low gear, and they could ride on the breakdown lane or the sidewalk, if there was one. Rita does not like motorcycles. But she does agree that it's their only option. And King writes a little uh, sentence in here that could kind of get lost in the shuffle, but I really enjoyed it. He writes that mankind's final traffic jam had been a dilly. So Larry and Rita are camped on a rise just outside of Bennington now. And Larry's able to look down on this New England town below them. It's as pretty as a picture postcard. There's some clean white churches, red brick buildings... Gray buildings shackled with ivy. The only thing that taints this landscape is the lack of smoke from the mill and the number of cars parked in odd angles on Main Street heading towards the highway. But in the sunny silence, silence that is except for the occasional twittering bird, Larry might have echoed the sentiments of the late Irma Fayette had he known the lady. No great loss. Since it's the 4th of July, Larry is feeling very American today. He does his business and begins to sing the star-spangled banner at the top of his lungs. Larry figures by now Rita will be standing at the flap of the tent, smiling at him, and he decides the best way to celebrate another year of independence is to have a morning quickie. Of course, Rita's not standing at the flap of the tent when he turns to look, and of course, Larry is irritated with her. Momentarily, but... Because, you know, she can't be on his wavelength at all times. And it says, when you could recognize that and deal with it, you are on your way to an adult relationship. See, this is Larry making progress as a human being, you guys. Larry feels like he's been handling Rita better since their harrowing experience in the Lincoln Tunnel. And it says, you had to put yourself in her place. That was the thing. You had to recognize that she was a lot older She had been used to having things a certain way for most of her life. It was natural for her to have a harder job adapting to a world that had turned itself upside down. The pills, for instance. He hadn't been overjoyed to discover that she had brought her whole fucking pharmacy along with her in a jelly jar with a screw on lid. Yellow jackets, qualudes, Darvon, and some other stuff that she called my little pick-me-ups. The little pick-me-ups were reds. Three of those with a shot of tequila and you would jitter and jive all the live long day. He didn't like it because too many ups and downs and all arounds added up to one mean monkey on your back. A monkey roughly the size of King Kong. 
and he didn't like it because when you got right down to where the cheese binds, it was a kind of slap in the face at him, wasn't it? What did she have to be nervous about? Why should she have trouble dropping off at night? He sure as hell didn't. And wasn't he taking care of her? You were damn tooting he was. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just tooting makes me laugh. Anyway, <laughs> Larry heads back to the tent, but then he hesitates. Maybe he should just let her sleep. But Larry, being Larry, he really wants to get laid, so he opens the tent and crawls inside. The smell hits him right away, especially after having enjoyed the fresh morning air. It's not an overly strong smell, but it's strong enough. The sweet, sour smell of vomit and sickness. Larry calls for Rita to wake up, but she doesn't respond. He rolls her over and notices the sleeping bag is half unzipped. Like maybe she realized what was happening to her and tried to struggle to get out. All the while, Larry slept peacefully beside her. In her hand is a pill bottle. Her eyelids are half closed and there's green vomit filling her mouth. The vomit that she choked on. Rita is dead. Larry stares at her for a very long time until the tent gets intolerably hot. He can't help but wonder how long he had been sleeping with her after she died, and he finds that extremely repulsive. His paralysis breaks, and Larry hurries out of the tent. He feels like he's going to puke, but he holds it together, at least until he realizes that he had gone back into the tent to have sex with her. Then he vomits and crawls away from the steaming mess, crying and hating the cruddy taste in his mouth and nose. Larry thinks about Rita for most of the morning, and he feels a measure of relief that she has died. A great measure, actually, but he would never tell anybody that because it confirms what everyone had ever said about him. He's not a nice guy. Larry says this out loud to himself, and it makes him feel better. It became easier to tell the truth, and truth-telling was the most important thing. And yet Larry spends most of the chapter trying to justify how he's feeling about Rita's death. He had made an agreement with himself to take care of her. And he wasn't a nice guy, but he wasn't a murderer either. And what he had done in the tunnel was pretty close to attempted murder. If you guys remember in the Lincoln Tunnel chapter, uh, Larry had heard a noise behind him and began to shoot his gun kind of uh, haphazardly through the dark and very nearly killed her. And so he was going to take care of her because of that. And he was not going to yell at her, no matter how pissed off he got sometimes, when she held him too tightly on the back of the motorcycle, when she put a can of peas in the coals of their fire without ventilating the top, and Larry had gotten the can out of the fire just before it could explode and potentially blind them with tin shrapnel. He had not yelled at her, had he? But he had only made a little joke about it. And the same thing with the pills because the pills had been her business. But maybe he should have discussed it with her, and maybe Rita wanted him to. But again, that had not been Larry's responsibility. This was survival, and some people weren't cut out for it. It says maybe there were people like her all over the country. The flu didn't just leave survivor types. Why the hell should it? There might be a young guy somewhere in the country right now, perfect physical condition, immune to the flu, but dying of tonsillitis. As Harry Youngman might have said, hey folks, I got a million of them. So why is Larry feeling so bad? He was telling the truth, and the worst of the truth was that he felt relief, wasn't it? The stone around his neck is now gone. But it says no, the worst is being alone, being lonely. Corny, but true. He wanted someone to share this view with, someone he could turn to and say with modest wit, 
On a clear day, you can see forever. And the only company was in a tent a mile and a half back with a mouthful of green puke, getting stiff, drawing flies. Larry closes his eyes, and he tells himself that he will not cry. He hates crying as much as he hates puking. In the end, Larry chickens out, and he does not bury Rita. He had summoned up the worst thoughts that he could about maggots and beetles, woodchucks that would smell her and come in for a bite, the unfairness of one human being leaving another like a candy wrapper or a discarded Pepsi can. But Larry rationalizes his decision by thinking it felt somewhat illegal to bury her. And while Larry feels like he could face going into Bennington to get the supplies he would need, and he could face coming back to the tent to dig a hole, he couldn't face going into the tent and dragging her stiff body out of it, dragging it to the hole and shoveling dirt over it, watching the earth patter on her white legs with their bulging nodules of varicose veins and sticks in her hair. So no, Larry won't do it. Instead, he finds a stick and uses it to fish his clothes out of the tent so he could get dressed. His clothes smell like death, and he still can see her, half in and half out of the sleeping bag, her hand still curled like it's still holding the pill bottle that had rolled away from her. Her half-lidded eyes seem to be staring at him accusingly. Larry uses the stick to close the tent flap. Larry does go into Bennington, but this is to get new clothes and a new pair of boots. He gets on his motorcycle to leave town, looking back up toward where the rise was, where they had pitched their tent, and though he can't see the tent anymore, that was probably for the best. Having not been paying attention to where he's going, Larry only barely manages to keep from crashing his bike into a turned horse trailer. The left footrest of his bike clips the trailer bumper and yanks the bike out from underneath him, leaving Larry on the highway's verge. Larry tells himself that he's all right, but he's not sure that he is. In the quiet and being all alone, Larry is realizing that he could have just died. His hands are cut up from where he was thrown from the bike. The knee of his pants are already shredded, and, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Anyone could fall off their bike, and it happens to everybody once in a while. But Larry knows that this is a big deal. He could have hit his head the right way and fractured his skull. He could have died there in the hot sun all alone. Or he could have strangled to death on his own puke, like a certain now-deceased friend. Where the motorcycle was once a charming machine that made him feel like James Dean or Jack Nicholson and Hell's Angels on Wheels, now it's a two-wheeled monster. Larry needs to have a new appreciation for it, because the motorcycle could kill him as easily as those pills had killed Rita. He gets the motorcycle to start up again, and he puts his way out of Bennington, never wanting so badly in that moment to see another human face. But he does not see one that day. Larry rides and eventually stops in Wilmington, where he gets a new sleeping bag, heavy gloves, and a helmet. He is extremely cautious now, envisioning horrible crashes and bleeding to death on the side of the road. As he approaches Brattleboro, the motorcycle begins to overheat. Larry parks it, knowing he should have pushed it, since it was meant to run at 60, and he's not even sure he'll be back for it now. That night, Larry sleeps on the Brattleboro Municipal Common under the partial shelter of a band shell. He fell asleep instantly, but around 11.20 at night, a noise wakes him, frightening him so bad that he grabs for his rifle and in a panicky moment squeezes the trigger. It's probably good that the safety is on, because otherwise he might have shot himself. Larry is sure there is something dangerous in the silence, a person or a large animal. 
He calls out, the sound of his own voice frightening him, but nothing and nobody responds. He sits there in silence, listening for the sound that had woken him. Had it been a sound, or was it something he had dreamed? Larry eventually dozes off again, but then something else wakes him up. Something that was definitely not a dream, and if the night hadn't been so cloudy, the moon would have likely revealed what was there. Larry sits forward and listens as the sound of dusty boot heels walks away from him down the sidewalk of Main Street, moving west, fading until they were lost in the open hum of things. Larry feels a mad urge to stand and call out, beg them to come back. But what if those boot heels actually did return, growing louder in a stillness where not even the crickets sang? Larry lays back down, but he knows he won't sleep again. But he does, and in the morning, he's quite sure that he had dreamed the whole thing. That is the end of Chapter 41. Larry and Rita, they made it out of New York City, traveling all the way to Bennington, Vermont, where Rita finally dies of a drug overdose. I suppose there's the question um, as to whether or not this was accidental or not. Maybe it was, giving her sleeping bag was half unzipped, like maybe she was trying to get out of it. But my gut instinct had always been that she purposely took her own life. I don't know that Rita wanted to live in this post-superflu world. She seemed very distraught by it, at least after seeing what had happened to the monster shatter in Central Park. And while Larry felt like he was being a good guy by taking care of her, who knows how Rita viewed it, especially if he was making her feel like a burden, whether he meant to or not. This simply had not been a life that she wanted to live. And of course, that's just my opinion, because it could have been accidental. She was taking pills constantly, and maybe she just got so used to them that she took too many without thinking. Rita didn't seem to have a lot of sense where it came to taking care of herself. The sandals that she wore for the long hike out of New York, putting a closed can of beans in a fire, peas, not beans, sorry. Like Larry said, it was survival and Rita couldn't cut it. As the chapter says, the flu didn't just leave survivor types. And we knew that in chapter 38, with all of these small insights into the non-related flu deaths of those who had been immune to Captain Tripps, Rita Blakemore simply joined the other 16% of the remaining population to die after the flu. And Larry is relieved by her death. He's human enough to recognize the kind of man that makes him, and he tries to justify it in his own head, he had taken care of her, but those pills were her business. He was not there to have an intervention. Rita simply couldn't cut it in this new world. Larry's reaction to Rita's death is certainly appalling in its own right, but it's also a realistic one. Larry's always been a selfish person. He's a taker. He's not a nice guy. He hadn't wanted to be tasked with the responsibility of taking care of another person, but Larry also hadn't wanted to be alone, and Rita seemed to be his only option for company. But she was also sensitive and helpless, and Larry simply didn't have the patience for her, no matter how hard he tried to. So yes, he's relieved, but I think he also feels a lot of guilt, and that's why he's trying so hard to rationalize her death in his head. It's not his fault, right? You're taking care of her. But I think he also recognizes that feeling relief at her death is a shitty thing. He also acknowledges out loud that, no, he's not a nice guy. Okay, so fine. Feel that relief that the burden is gone, that he can continue on now without worrying about her or dealing with her hassle, as he called it. But to not even bury her 
to leave her to rot in that tent in her own puke where animals will get to her. That's the part that really got to me because Rita might have been a pain in the ass, but they went through a lot of this stuff together. They got out of New York City. She was his companion, his lover. She might have driven him crazy, but look, Larry's no peach either. He's selfish and he can be an asshole. Maybe Rita couldn't stand him either, but she stuck it out with him because she had no other survival skills and she needed someone to take care of her. Larry's just a coward, and I feel like the least he could have done was give her a proper burial before leaving, but he's too chicken shit to do that. And this is an interesting contrast to Fran, who buried her father so lovingly, and while she hadn't been able to bury Gus, she had at least made sure that he was covered in a bed near a window that looked over the ocean. And Nick, who had buried Janie Baker himself. Maybe those people meant more to Fran and Nick than Rita meant to Larry, but even so, this was Larry's chance to do the right thing, and he didn't. As he leaves town, Larry crashes his motorcycle, and that seems to trigger the realization that he could die too. And it wasn't Rita's death that made him so aware of his own mortality, is the fact that he could have hit his head and fractured it like the 10-year-old girl had in Chapter 38. He could choke on his own puke, like Rita. Larry is not immortal. That brush with death really slows him down, and he doesn't get too far in his travels when he leaves Bennington, because Bennington to Brattleboro is only 40 miles. But he stops there to sleep, and there he wakes up to a noise. He doesn't know what or who it is, but he can hear the sound of dusty boot heels walking away from him. And we know who wears dusty boots. So was that Randall Flagg haunting Larry's dreams? Was it a dream? Larry seems to think that in the morning that it was when he wakes up. Even if he's not having the same kind of vivid dreams that Nick and Stu were having, Flagg seems to still be making his presence known in Larry's mind as well. So for the moment, Larry is on his own. Just like Stu Redman, who in Chapter 42 will finally meet two other survivors, Fran and Harold. This is an event that will trigger ramifications throughout the rest of the novel. And you know what, guys? Next week's chapter is the last chapter in book one, Captain Trips, and we are making progress. (laughs) That is it for this episode, everybody. If you are enjoying the podcast, it would be amazing to get a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any questions or any feedback or you just want to talk about the book, you can send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens. I hope everybody is having a fantastic start to the February month and M-O-O-N. That spells see you next week. 